Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This class is going to be very similar um, to what you might experience in a class like Rabbi Klickfeld's Chumash with Rashi class or any kind of Parsha class where we're just going to like take an hour every Tuesday, go through as much halacha as we can get through, and then the next week we'll pick up where we left off. So it's not like today we're going to discuss pots and pans and next week we're going to discuss uh, meat and milk. We're going to just go as the as the text goes and um, and be able to to pick up the different topics as they as they come to us. If it's going to be like Rabbi Klickfeld's class, we're going to do one halacha a week. I know. It's funny when I told him that that I was using his class as an example. He said, "Oh, great! So you're signing a 13 year contract because that's when you'll finish with Kashrut." I said, "Sure, sure." <laughs> Um, so we, we're going to go as slow or as fast as we need to. Some of the halakha will, will be quick and some of them will be, um, uh, take a little bit more time to unpack, especially when we get into halakha that you are all actually using on a day to day, or at least, um, a year to year basis in terms of Pesach. So some things will slow us down and other things we might go quickly through. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of background into the Shulchan Aruch and then we will, um, sorry, I'm still answering emails for people who need the password. Um, and, uh, and then we'll go, we'll go straight into it. So just a little bit of, a little bit of background on what the Shulchan Aruch is, um, for those of you who have not studied Halacha in the past. The Shulchan Aruch is most commonly known as the Code of Jewish Law. It is, if you go into a lawyer's office, you see all those books on their shelves that, you know, are green with red binding often. Um, well, that is the same for the red books with the black binding for a rabbi. Um, and that is the Shulchan Aruch. It looks a little something like this. Uh, it could be bigger or smaller, but this is the general, the general look. Um, and when you open it up, I'll open up to a page that I don't have a bookmark in. When you open it up, you see that there is text here in the middle and then commentaries all around the sides. We are not going to be using this text. I'm, I'm going to be using this text in the original to teach, but I'm going to be showing you a Safari page so that we can really zoom in on just specifically the text. Um, sometimes I might come up with a commentary. Yes, the Shulchan Aruch will be the text that we use each week. Um, specifically right now, because we're in what's called Yoradea. So I'm going to get to that in a second. There are different categories of, um, of, hold on. Uh, sorry, everyone. Okay. I'm having a really hard time getting in. Okay, um, there are different sections of the Shulchan Aruch. It's based off of a text called the Arba Turim, which means four um, lines. <laughs> four, four, like when you stand in a tour in uh, in Israel, that means you're standing online, right? So you're standing in line waiting, like for a bakery or something. Um, so it's the four lines, the four categories. We are going to be just focusing on the Shulchan Aruch, mostly because the tour has a lot of other stuff in it, and the Shulchan Aruch is the most basic of its text. There are 
For the Orach Chaim, so there are four different sections of Shulchan Aruch. One is Orach Chaim, one is Yoradea, one is Choshen Mishvat, and one is Evan Ha'ezer. So there are these four different sections. Orach Chaim is where we see prayer laws and synagogue laws and laws of the different holidays and Shabbat. So we'll definitely get there. And then Yoradea is much more the laws of Kashrut and conversion and mourning and um, Israel, in fact, and Nida and all of those kinds of much more basic uh, uh, communal but daily laws, as opposed to ones that you might be that you might see um, in in a in a more broad way, like prayer or like the holidays. So we're going to focus most. And those two categories, in 20 years, if we want to start talking about marriage and gitin and those kinds of things, that comes in Evan Ha'ezer. So we could get to another one of the sections. But for right now, we're going to focus in Yoradea for Kashrut and then Orachaim for Shabbat. So we are going to be looking at the Shulchan Aruch. But when we get to the Orachaim, there's another book called the Mishnah Berura, which makes things even more clear. So when we get to Shabbat, I'll introduce that um, that book as well. So the Shulchan Aruch was written in about 1563. That's when it was brought together by Yosef Karo. Um, it was published two years later, but call it the 16th century, late 16th century. Um, Caro wrote the, wrote the actual text, and then there is what is called the gloss, which was written by Rabbi Moshe Isserlis. Now, we predominantly at Temple Betham, we are Ashkenazi Jews. Not all of us, but the majority of our community are made up of Ashkenazi Jews. And yet, we follow the Shulchan Aruch, which is a very interesting thing, because the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo, who's the writer of the Shulchan Aruch, was a Sephardic rabbi, a Sephardic opinion. So when you look at the Shulchan Aruch in its actual text, you're reading Sephardic opinion, and then Rabbi Moshe Isserlis gives the Ashkenazi opinion, or he's called the Mapa, like the tablecloth, the thing that goes over um, the Sephardic opinion, the, the Ashkenazi opinion. So we often, when we say, oh, we're following the Shulchan Aruch as Ashkenazi Jews, we have some kind of combination of Sephardic and Ashkenazi custom in the laws that we're already following. This comes up most prominently around Passover and Kitniot, <laughs> or Passover and koshering certain kinds of dishes like glass, for example. We Ashkenazi Jews, especially in the conservative movement, often, for better or for worse, pick and choose when we're going to be using the Shulchan Aruch, when we're going to be using the Ramah. If we were very traditional in how we were going to follow the laws of Judaism, we would just be following the laws of the Ramah. We would not be following the laws of Yosef Karo unless we were Sephardic Jews. So we're going to be learning the Shulchan Aruch in its entirety, but I just wanted to give you that background so that you know that much of what we're going to be hearing is actually Sephardic opinion, some of what, some of which we've picked up as Ashkenazi Jews, uh, and, and the gloss that we'll hear throughout from the Ramah is actually the Ashkenazi opinion. Does anybody have any questions on that? Okay. No? 
Okay, great. Um, so that's that's the background on Shulchan Aruch, what it is, who was Rabbi Yosef Karo, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The Shulchan Aruch is actually based on another text that Yosef Karo wrote called the Beit Yosef. Um, he wrote the Beit Yosef. He then decided that he wanted to kind of create a more digestible version of halacha, of Jewish law. And that's what came out in the Shulchan Aruch. So the Beit Yosef is in the the margins here of the Shulchan Aruch as a, it looks like a commentary, but really as the kind of original space of text. And then the Shulchan Aruch was written from that. There are many things that because he wrote it later in life, he added that aren't in the Beit Yosef that then come about in the uh, in the Shulchan Aruch later on. So just so you know, I won't come up so much, but just so you kind of know the background, um, uh, that's where that's where it comes from. There were three main rabbis who Rabbi Yosef Karo used when compiling the Shulchan Aruch. Obviously his own work, but then before that he used the Rif, Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi, Maimonides, the Rambam, and Asher ben Yechiel, the Rosh. So there were these three rabbis that he would look at their opinions see where he um, where he agreed with them, but he really accepted the three of them as authorities for the laws that he then put into the Shulchan Aruch. So when you're reading through the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, for example, you might see um, you might see that there is some kind of correlation, maybe not exact wording, but a type of correlation between the actual um, the actual Mishnah Torah and the Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch will have more detail than the Mishnah Torah. Um, I found this uh, this quote that I wanted to read to you because I think it's it's just fascinating. And then we'll go then we'll go into some of the the laws themselves. So it says here, Karo wrote the Shulchan Aruch in his old age for the benefit of those who did not possess the education necessary to understand the Beit Yosef. So he wrote this work that he thought was too highfalutin for people to understand. And so then he wrote the Shulchan Aruch so that people could better understand halacha. And it is true that the Shulchan Aruch is much easier to understand both in terms of Hebrew and in terms of just kind of digest, right? Being able to look at something and say, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm not supposed to do then the Beit Yosef, then the Mishnah Torah, then any other version of, uh, of Jewish law. The quote goes on to say, the format of this work parallels that adopted by Yaakov ben Asher in his Arba Turim, which is the text that, that the Shulchan Aruch is parallel um, to, but more concisely, without citing sources. So the Arba Turim is the, the bigger work, I'll say, in terms of the structure of how the Shulchan Aruch is put together. And then the Shulchan Aruch really allows us to learn it like we're going to right now and digest it and understand it. Um, that was a lot of information. Any, any questions? And you might, you'll have them as we go along and I'm happy to repeat myself, obviously. Um, no? Okay, so let's start. I'm going to be using Safaria uh, so that you can all see the text that I'm seeing. So I'm going to share my screen. Uh, but if people have the original and you would like to look at it, you're obviously more than welcome to do that. 
We're going to be starting with Kashrut. I thought that it would be an interesting place to start. As I, I was talking to a few rabbis, some of you know Rabbi Josh Pernick, and I was talking to him about this yesterday. And he said, start with kashrut because it makes people feel good about how they've been keeping kosher, even if they don't know that they're keeping kosher. Whereas when we get to Shabbat, people will be very nervous about the ways that they're keeping Shabbat based on the laws we're learning. So we're going to ease you into to Jewish law and make you feel good about all the things that you're doing. All jokes aside, I want to make sure that you all know I'm not teaching this class to make anybody more from or make anybody more... Um, observant in their own observe in their own observances. I guess that's redundant. Um, in their own practice of Jewish law um, or of Judaism, I I just love Jewish law. This is something that I find really powerful. I love the idea of boundaries of figuring out the places where I live in the world of holiness in this tradition and uh, or more guilty just said yeah um and and this is a place where where i find that comfort some people find it in philosophy some people find it in kabbalah this for me is is a real comfort in terms of how i practice my judaism and how to know uh what, what to do and what not to do. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I do everything that it tells me to do, right? You still make choices in life. Uh, but, but I like the idea of the black and white. So we're going to start in Yoridea. We're going to start in that second section of, of these four sections. And we're going to start with Kashru. And we're not going to talk about animals. We're actually going to start with, uh, with Kalim, with vessels. So we're going to start in the kitchen, basically. We're going to start talking about what it means to kosher vessels, what it means to be able to see a vessel and know what to do with it, etc., etc. So it's 717. We'll do as much of this as we can. Again, please feel free to ask questions, and then we'll we'll just continue on in this topic uh, as, as we go. Any questions before I share my screen? Okay, now that we have two Zoom screens, which is awesome, I'm so glad that so many people are excited about this class, uh, just use your virtual hand, because <clears throat> I can't see the whole, everybody all at the same time. Okay, so again, we're at Siman, which means <clears throat> chapter, and then Seif, which means um, section, or as my students in sixth grade like to say, verse, but it's not really a verse, it's just the section of the of the chapter. So here, here we are. All right. Now I really can't see anybody. So if people have questions, you have to use your virtual hand. So I can only see like four of you. All right. Can everybody see this? Everyone see the Safaria page? Great. Okay. I'm also going to put it in the chat so that if people want to look on their own, they can. Okay. So this is Siman 120, I think I said 121, so excuse me for the, for the mistake here. It says, Dinei Tvilat HaKelim. So these are the laws of toivaline, of, of immersing your kelim, of immersing your vessels. Hakoneme ha'ovek kochavim klei se'uda. So a person who, who buys a vessel from someone who is an Ovid Kochavim, someone who is an idolater, or someone who is an, uh, a person who literally works for the stars. Ovid Kochavim is someone who uh, believes in stars. A meal vessel of metal or a glass vessel or vessels uh, covered 
in lead from the inside. Even though they are new, one must dunk them in a mikvah or a stream that is 40 seot. So even though a vessel might be new, you go to Bed Bath & Beyond, you buy a vessel, it's brand new. It's in its packaging. It says it was made in, I don't know, Kentucky. You take it home. You are supposed to then put it into a mikvah or into a river that's deep enough that it would be considered a mikvah. So you can go to an ocean, you can go to a stream, any living body of water that would be considered a mikvah, you can use for tevilat kalim. Now, you're all thinking, oh no, I just bought a bunch of pots and pans and I've never done this before. Many people do not do this any longer because we do not believe that people in Kentucky, let's say, are using the item that they made in the factory for Bed Bath & Beyond to use as something to, to pray to a god. If you were to buy an item, <coughs> excuse me, if you were to buy an item in India <coughs> or somewhere where you know that idols are being used that could be seen as regular vessels, right, bowls, cups, might be used in a type of ritual, spiritual practice, you would want to do this. So your tea kettle that you buy from Bed Bath & Beyond is very different than if you go abroad somewhere where idol worship is a part of their spiritual practice, you might want to then toivel, immerse those, those items. <coughs> so, oh, Denise, go ahead. So kind of a two-part question, um, would that also apply to like Christian worship? Because there's a lot of like, you know, statues and paintings and things going on. Um, also because like when this was written, it's like way past Greece and Rome and all that idol stuff. So Christian worship, to my to, to the best of my knowledge, there wouldn't be something such as a mug or uh, a tea kettle that would be used in the same kind of way. Now, if you go to the Christian quarter in Jerusalem and you buy some kind of plate or some kind of bowl that may be used in, um, you know, collecting in a church or some that kind of um, spiritual connection, you might choose to. It's still not idol worship, right? They're still not using that plate to worship a god. They're just using it as a way of collecting money. Um, but for example, if for whatever reason you decided you were going to buy the cup that they use for communion, then yeah, you would want to toivel that um, because that's now been used for a very specific purpose towards a god that we don't believe in. But Christian practice doesn't tend to have as much of that. Now, if you would like to be super um, careful about this, you just toivel everything you buy, which some people do, and that's totally fine, and you can, and it doesn't ruin the item, and it's fine. I don't do that. Um, but there are many people who just do it because that's the that's their practice, and that makes them feel good about um, about what they're buying. Mike. Or you may do it if you have an ultra-Orthodox child who will not eat in your house unless you've done that. Correct. 
Great. So there are other reasons of which we're going to come up with many in the next 13 years. Um, there are many, many reasons that you do these halachot, right? It's not always just for you. Oftentimes, it's also for whoever is going to be coming into your home. So there might be people, like Mike is explaining, who keep a very, very kosher home so that other people can come into it, even if that's not necessarily their practice. And so toiveling would be very important to the people coming into your home. Uh, Helen, and then tomorrow. But first, unmute. Yeah. Hi. A quick question. It says lead. Yes. And now we are very careful about the use of lead. So yes. it's an acronym. I mean, we would say steel or, cal- you know, you know, there are other metals. What do yes. we do? How do we change that? Yeah. So uh, the, the truth is, if you're trying to be very careful, you change it to be exactly what you just said, like anything that we are, you know, Teflon or anything that that is that is the inside of heavy metal pots or something that that is keeping something insulated is really what they're worried about, then you could change it to that in a more modern day setting. You could also just, this is part of the description in that email that said that Rabbi Alexander said this is a dangerous subject. You could also just say, this is what the halakha says, we no longer make vessels with lead, so don't worry about it. Right, so you could choose to recognize that the vessels that are in that category no longer exist. And so we don't have to worry about them. Um, but if you wanted to be extra scrupulous, you would then do exactly what you did and just make the connection to other things that we have. Tamar. Um, is it just the act of dunking the thing, the vessel yeah. in water without any prescribed words while you're doing it? Yeah. So the, I don't know if this, um, there, there is a, yeah, okay. So there is something that you say, we're going to get to it in just a second. There is okay. something that you say, but it's not the same as the blessing that you would say if you're converting, for example. Um, so it's on, it's on the vessel, it's on the specific vessel and you say it before you would say all the, before you do the dunking of all the other things. Um, yeah. Was there another, I thought I saw another hand. Okay. Um, the Shokhanarov only deals with what and how, but not the why, right? Yes, exactly. So the why we might get to sometimes in this particular safe they're looking at right now, there is no why. Um, but Larry and Diane just asked the how and the what, which is, which is predominantly what the Shokhanarov is going to deal with in general. But yeah, we are going to, at some, at certain points, we're going to see the why, especially when we get to Shabbat, you'll see a little bit more of the why. Yeah. Norm or Rachel. How, when it says 40 se'ot, yeah. how, is that like a hand's breadth? Is it, I'm thinking of the various units of measurement. Yeah. And so 40 se'ot is what makes a mikvah. So it needs to be a body of water that you could go in to be a mikvah. So just think about, um, you know, it couldn't be like the LA River that basically has no water in it. It would, it would have to be something that you could really dunk into, um, and it would have to be a living body of water. So <clears throat> most people do this in the ocean or in a river or in a lake if they live in a place that has that kind of thing, um, or a mikvah. You can do it in an actual mikvah. Okay. <clears throat> so. 
So the Ramah says, there, the Ramah, meaning the Ashkenazi opinion, says, there are those who say that vessels that are covered in lead, even on the inside, are dunked in a mikvah without a blessing, and this is how we act. So what this is saying is, <clears throat> based on the question that Tamar just asked, right, that this, what we were talking about originally with Yosef Kara was that there would be a blessing that's going to come in a second. But then the Ramah says, that if the if the lead is on the inside, that they're put into a mikvah, but you don't have to say a blessing because you're just doing it to be extra careful. It's not actually necessary, and therefore you wouldn't do a, a blessing because the blessing would be levatala, which means like a canceled blessing. It doesn't mean anything. So you wouldn't want to do a blessing on something that doesn't actually need to be toiveled, but you might want to toivel that thing anyway to make it be to make it be up to your standards of kashru. Okay, it's funny that it says this is how we act because again, going back to the lead conversation, we, we don't we don't act in this way at all because we don't have lead um, lead items. Paula said, is there a different section of the mikvah for vessels different from the conversion or nida immersion waters? So in some places, yes, there is, and other places, no, there's not. It just kind of depends on access to mikvah. Um, but but it definitely you you definitely wouldn't have someone go into the mikvah for conversion and then you know be able to dunk a, a pot in at the same time that they're in there. It would be a different a different process in Israel. They, on Pesach specifically, have very large vats of water on the corners of streets where you can do this to kosher the vessel itself. That's not toiveling, that's koshering, um, but, but it is the same kind of idea of providing something that, that would act as um, a mikvah. Oh, Denise, I see that you just also uh, answered it. Great. Okay, Mike and then Jeff. Yes, if anybody would like to see what it looks like, Auntie MS on Robertson has a mikvah for, for Kaleem. It's in the back. You go down along the side. There's a side entrance. You don't have to go through the building. And it's self-serve. They have the brachot posted. You just lift the lid, say the bracha and dunk, and you can see what it looks like. It's about six by six by maybe five feet deep. Oh, awesome. That's great. I didn't know that. And there's lots of trash from everyone's bed and bath boxes and different things there that you're supposed to clean up after yourself. But everyone goes there with new things and unwraps awesome. them. That's hysterical. I mean, well, and terrible, but also funny. Okay, Jeff. So what's the distinction between toiveling and koshering? I mean, right. where did we get to burying things in dirt <laughs> as opposed to dunking them in water? Yeah. People often ask me about the burying things in dirt. It's a really good question. I'm not actually sure that I know <laughs> um, where the burying things in dirt came from. I think it might have actually come from a time where you couldn't get to a mikvah. And earth all does the same thing that a mikvah does. It nullifies the item. It, but only for koshering, not for toiveling. So the difference between the two is that toiveling is that you are preparing something for use for the first time and, and really ridding it of any other spiritual or religious um, connection or significance. When you kosher something, you are changing its status. So whether you're changing its status from normal year use to Passover use or meat use to milk use, you are, you're changing the status of the item in terms of the food you eat on it or, or use it with. 
the toivaline of something can also be done for all items, whereas koshering, and we'll get to this later, koshering cannot be done for every type of pot, pan, plate, utensil, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the, those are the two main distinctions. Um, okay, let me toy, oh, <laughs> thanks, Nora. Okay. Um, so this is, this is very interesting. If anybody's ever, um, taken a baby to a mikvah, this is the same way that you take a baby to a mikvah. Um, the vessel needs to be loose in your hand at the time of dunking. So when you take a baby to a mikvah, you, the baby you hope is, is older than 30 days and under a year, because that's the easiest time to do this. Um, the closer to 30 days, actually, the, the easier, though for the mother, the scarier. Um, you hold the baby in your arms like this. You blow in the baby's face so that the baby close, closes up uh, his or her mouth and nose and holds their breath. And you drop them in the water for a split second, and then you lift them back up. That's what you do with a, an item to toivel as well. Um, not to compare babies with, you know, plates, but, uh, you do the same, you do the same thing. You don't want to drop it, right? Because it, it, now I'm talking about plates, not babies. You don't want to drop it because you don't want to, you don't want to break the, you don't want to break the plate or the bowl or whatever it is. Um, but it also, just like a person, needs the water to completely surround it. It can't be in your hands. It needs to be let go. So you let it go for if it's tight in your hands, it is an interposition, meaning that your, 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 um, your hands are now in between you and the living water. And if you dampen your hand in the water at the outset, there is no need to worry. So there are certain things like very small utensils or very small cups that you might not want to do this with. So if you put your hands in the water first, this is also how we feel about babies in terms of putting them into the water, that if your hands are in the water, when they go in, it's as if your hands are kind of part of the water and helping them in that process. So if you have a very small item that you're putting into the, to the toivaline water, I'll call it, um, you would, you can have it in kind of a cup of water in your hand. You let it go, you pick it back up, but you don't have to be worried if it touched your hand as it went under. Um, there are usually mesh strainers there to help you. Yeah. In modern day, I think they've come, Samantha Gerlich just said that there are usually mesh strainers. In modern day, now there are many things to kind of help you do this in the most halachic or crazy way possible. Um, but but in, you also could do it in such a way that, that your hand is wet first. Denise, I see your hand. Let me just do the gloss first. Um, so the Ramah says specifically that you dampen your hands in the water of the mikvah, but not in the water that is detached. So this usually the Ramah comes in with very, very funny things to share. And this is one of them. He's basically saying, don't go to the bathroom and wash your hands and come back with your hands not dried. He's saying, you have to dampen your hands with the water of the mikvah, and then you can touch the item. And it still has to be mikvah water. It can't be just, you know, the water of the world. Uh, Denise, go ahead. So, like, just a procedural question, because um, when I learned about doing this, they said all the surfaces that are going to touch the food. So yeah. let's say like on pots and pans, you could hold it by the handle mm -hmm. or hold the outside of it because is that, was that right? Yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. Sometimes it's just hard to do depending on how big the vat is. Like some of the ones in Israel, 
you, you know, depending on how tall you are, you might not be able to do that. Um, so yes, that's totally fine. And it goes, it's the same for kosher, right? When you are koshering something, it also now handles get, get, splattered on and food caked into and all those kinds of things. So often people just kosher the whole, the whole thing. Um, but yeah, in terms of toiling, that's okay. If you can, if you can hold it by something, you're, you're more than welcome to. Uh, okay. Any questions on this one? Okay. Look at how fast we're going guys. We are making my contract shorter and shorter. Okay. So Yevarech al Tvilat Kli, Ve'im Hem Shnaim O Yotem Yevarech al Tvilat Kelim. So you you say the blessing al tvilat kli, meaning on this one vessel. So on the on the dipping of the vessel. Um, by the way, when you go to the mikvah for a conversion, you, the blessing is al hatvila on the dunking, on the going in. So it is it is similar language, though not the same, because again, you're not converting an object. You are um, you are making it into a vessel that you can now use. Um, but then the, the, the Shulchan Aruch goes on to say, and if there are two of them or more, obviously, if you have more than two, it becomes plural as well. Mevarech al tvilat kelim. So you say, instead of just al tvilat kli, you say al tvilat kelim. You say it on the many vessels. You only have to say the blessing once though. You don't have to say it for every single vessel. It kind of works the same as Birkat, right? If you're, if you eat breakfast, you can't say birkat for breakfast that's gonna last all the way through dinner. Or I guess it'd be vice versa. You can say breakfast for dinner, uh, for din, you can't say birkat for dinner that like encompasses all of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But if, if at the beginning of the tefillah practice, you are saying the blessings for all of the vessels that you are going to toivel that day, that's fine. If you go back the next day, you have to say the blessing again. That's pretty self-explanatory, but I just wanted to make sure that that was, that was known. Um, now it's going to go into the specifics, the specific items that go into, uh, that need to be toiled, that need to be put into a vessel after bought. It literally says tripods in Hebrew, just so you all know. That's the Hebrew here too. Sheshutafim alehem, so that you use upon them today wrote uh, a a large pot. Enam teonot tvila. So they do not need to be put into a mikvah. They do not need any dunking. But barbecue grills uh, that that is written here in I don't think that's English. So in a different language here. Uh, so the reason that a barbecue grill you do need to put into a um, into a, a mikvah is because you're going to put the meat directly on the thing. If you have a oh my gosh, what do they call a trivet? If you have a trivet for your pot, it doesn't matter because you're not eating off of that trivet. Later on, when we start talking about koshering things in your house, the same is going to go for a sink. You don't need to kosher your sink, even though everybody does and everybody has multiple sinks. That's just to be extra, extra careful. But technically, you don't have to because you don't eat out of your sink, right? Anything that goes into your sink is meant to be in your sink to either clean or go down the drain. You're not eating out of your sink. So same thing with a tripod or a trivet, we would call it. You don't need to toivel that because you're not putting food on it. You're putting a vessel with food on it, 
the pot needs to go in the mikvah, but not the not the trivet. Um, bless then dip. That's the right order. Yes, exactly, Paula. Any questions on the on the different vessels here? The tripod or the okay? Um, yes, Larry and Diane. Just to be clear, you said meat, but all of these things apply to to vegetarians as well because this has nothing to do with kashering and keeping separation between basari and chalavi. Correct, correct. Yes, when I said barbecue, I was just thinking hamburgers. But you are completely correct that if you are grilling vegetables or salmon or whatever, tofu, do you grill tofu? Well, anyway. You can. Um, you you can. can. It doesn't break yeah. apart. Yeah, you got to be very careful. You keep thinking. Okay. Um, okay, another class for another time. Uh, but y yes, this has nothing to do with whether or not it's meat or dairy. It's just if it touches food, that's what we're worried about. So it's the same also with cups, right? If you're going to be using, if someone gives you a mug and you know you're never going to drink out of it, you're just going to use it for flowers, let's say, you don't have to toivel that because if you're not going to drink out of it, it doesn't matter that it's in your house. It just matters if you're eating or drinking out of it. So that that's that is the main issue here. Um, that that there's food on it. Doesn't matter what kind of food, but that there's food on it or in it. Uh, thank you for the clarification. So sakin shel shchita. Oh, there's a question. Tofu stays intact if you press the water. <laughs> okay, great. You can all give me tofu tips. Sakin shel shchita. So. The knife that's used for shchita, the knife that's used for killing an animal in a, maybe this is why I was thinking of me, um, in a ritual slaughter. There are those who say that you do not need to uh, toivel this knife. Interesting. It is touching meat, but not at a time when it's going to be eaten, right? The knife is being used only for the preparation of the animal not for the steak that's on your counter, right? So the the um, the Ramah, the gloss says, and there are those who disagree, and it is good to dunk it without a blessing. So there are those who say, this goes back to the lead comment that he makes earlier on also, there are those that say it's not necessary, but you know what? We might as well. We're taking all of our pots and pans and all of our plates and cups anyway, why not also take our shechita knife, which, you know, most households did have. Um, why not also take that? It's better to do it, but you don't have to bless it. So if it's the only thing that you are going to be putting into the mikvah, you don't have to give a blessing to it because it's not necessary for it to be put into a mikvah. Therefore, it doesn't need a blessing. But if you have it, you might as well dunk it anyway. Um, the irons upon which unleavened breads, matzot, um, are repaired, do not require dunking. So when you are making, when you're uh, making bread or when you are um, preparing, that's what I was looking for, preparing matzah, you don't need to put those kinds of, what I imagine being, uh, I'm thinking of the word drying rack, that's not what I mean, um, uh, where you put bread so it cools. A cooling rack. Did someone just write that for me? Yep, cooling rack, Jackie. Thank you very much. Uh, I knew it wasn't a drying rack. Um, this is the problem with teaching a class at 7 p.m. By the way, you're going to get a lot of this. By the end of the day, I just language is not a thing. Um, 
If you have a a cooling rack, you don't necessarily need that to go into the mikvah because that is going to again be something that you're not eating off of. And by the time something goes on it, it's prepared. It's not. It's no longer in its in its stage of contracting anything. It's prepared. So it would be like putting something on your counter. You're just putting on a different device so that it doesn't get uh, smushy or or uh, or stay warm. And so too a covering which we force onto the bread to bake it. But a covering for a large pot requires dunking. Okay, so if you if you watch the British baking show, uh, British, is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, like a proofing bag, you do not need to, to toivel that, right? Because it's only touching the bread or near the bread at a time when it's when it's not going to matter. That's not going to be a, a thing that you're eating. You're not going to eat raw dough. However, the top of a pot you do need to put into a mikvah. Why? Because not because you're going to eat off the top of the pot, but because if something splatters on the top of the pot, it goes back into the pot. And there's a thing called zaya, which literally means sweat. Kind of gross. But the fact that there is something hot that creates condensation at the top of a pot that then drips back down into the pot, that is considered part of what you're going to end up eating. So very often if it's soup, it's just water. But it's important that, you know, if the soup has meat in it, for example, this is why you can't use the same pot lid for meat and milk because the the condensation contracts a type of a food particle that we believe then goes back into the item. So you have to take that to a mikvah because it's considered part of the cooking process. Is everybody clear? Even if you're not clear, do, are you at least do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Even if it sounds crazy, do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Okay, great. Yeah, Marlise or Gary. Um. So these laws for whether or not they need to be toiled, does that then carry over to needing separate? Um, I, kinds for milk or meat or parv, or is that just is that a different set of it's different. rules? Yeah, so that goes back. That goes back. That goes back to Jeff's question. Um, that th- these are two very different processes. Processes. Um, so one is to make something just able for you to use, knowing that no gods were were praised on that plate or through that cup. And then the other process is to make sure that if you used milk in one pot, but now you want to use it for meat, that you've kind of nullified it into its next status to be able to use for meat. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and I have one more. Yeah, yeah, I guess I just wonder when you were talking about the, the racks to cool things, like if you were making a dairy banana bread versus a a, a par of one, I mean, I assume you would have different ones for the different. Yeah, most people sets. most people do. Um, but again, it's probably not necessary because of something called banyomo. Unless you're cooking, unless you're cooking a dairy banana bread on the same day that you're cooking a par of banana bread, if you're making them weeks apart, it probably doesn't matter if they're metal. Um, but people, in terms of kosher, are usually stringent, and so they'll just get to just to make sure. We'll three. get into more of those kinds of examples later. Or three, because you need a par of, you know, yeah. we have stuff, we don't have all the greatest, we have space. But anyways, a question for you regards to... Um, there's definitely nothing that regards the cleansing, cleansiness because if I consider a lake maybe clean, 
but the ocean, like in LA, is not clean. Right. If you, if you took it to uh, Bologna Creek, it's not going to be clean. So cleanliness yeah. is not, not an issue, correct? No. No, so this has nothing to do with cleaning. This has everything to do with making sure that it doesn't have any suspicious gods on it, basically, um, or being used with it. So most people who toivel their dishes take them to a mikvah and then go home and put them through a dishwasher um, to make sure that they're clean. Just like if you were to get a new potter pan, you would clean it at home. Even if you don't take it to a mikvah first, you just want to make sure that it's clean before you use it. Yeah, Mike. Is the real issue that the utensil might have been used in an idolatrous way, or is it merely the fact that it might have been made by somebody who was an idolater? I think it's both. I mean, I think it, it kind of depends. Nowadays, I think it's more the latter than the former. Um, but I think that it it is both in terms of what they're writing in the actual Shulchan Aruch, because when you were buying things in a marketplace, you didn't always know how that vessel had been used beforehand. Um, nowadays, we obviously, if we're buying something new, we expect that it was new. Um, so that, again, that's why I think more so today it would be the latter. But back in the day, I have I have no idea if they knew if things were used or, or new unless they were buying it from the person and watching them create it. It's a great question. Tybal. Um. I always thought it was more about ritual status than it was idolatry. Like, I don't know if this is the right um, analogy, but the same way when a child is born um, to Jewish parents, the child is Jewish, but then there's a covenantal ceremony to bring the child into the covenant. It's like a change in, I'm going to say, ritual status. Mm-hmm. But it was really more about the the whole idolatry, not just a way to sanctify before use. Um, it, yes, I mean nothing. There is nothing sanctified about using, you know, one of my dairy plates, right? But the the idea of creating this distinction is a type of kedusha, right, is a type of distinction and holiness. But what we're worried about in this Shulchan Aruch piece is mostly around whether or not it was, again, back to Mike's uh, distinction, was either made by or used by someone who is an idol worshiper and then is coming into our home to be used in a way in which we would say a bracha over our food and a bracha after our food, etc., um, Jackie asked in the chat, does everything need to be cleaned before toiling like it does before koshering? No. Um, so something can go straight from bed, bath and beyond into a mikvah. Uh, I suggest washing afterwards, <laughs> but you don't have to wash it before. Um, because again, it's not, you're not, null, you're not, um, you're not making something I don't want to use the word part of, but you're not making something status quo before before you take it to this mikvah that you need to do for koshering. Um, but in this particular case, you're just you're you're just making it fit for use. Basically, it doesn't matter if it's being used for meat or for milk. Um, and then Diane and Bob wrote, "What is a knife for undressing? How are matzot repaired?" 
Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about, but let me see. Hold on. Um, that was a bad translation. Yeah. If you read the Hebrew, it says it says the bar is for preparing, not repairing. Yeah. So what it means, I suspect, is a knife used for disassembling, say, a chicken. Um, Are you looking? Am I looking on the yeah. right side? No, you, yeah. Yeah, you are. You are. Yeah. Also, a knife for undressing. You dress. You dress a carcass, which means you're 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 taking the you're take you're skinning it and, and separating the parts. That's what dressing means. And the repair is a mis, is a mistranslation of mitkanim in the text. It's just a bad translation. Yeah, sorry, I I couldn't figure out what you were looking at, but now I see it. Yeah, it's just it is a it is a poor way of of describing the type of preparation. So the slaughtering knife, right, when it says undressing here, it just means like taking apart the animal, right? Like um, whether that's fat from skin or just the animal in general. Um, sorry, Denise. Uh, <laughs> and then later on, um, the I don't think it means repair in terms of fix, but it just means like the way you would make crackers. Like you don't want the, you want them to go on something that's going to get the air all around them so they can dry, as opposed to it's continuing to be wet because matzahs need to be dry. Um, Jeff, so when you talk about doing this because it might involve someone who was an idol worshiper, yeah, what about if it's made by someone who's Jewish, but who is non-observant. Yeah, great. It's <laughs> a great, a great question. Um, so n- not surprisingly, uh, when this text was written, we, uh, we were all very, very sure that all Jews were like us <laughs> when the text was being written. Um, and so we didn't assume that if someone was not, uh, that if someone was Jewish, I should say that they had different kinds of practices or potentially even beliefs uh, in in how to connect to the divine or connect even the, to the idea of, of one God. So that being said, I, I think that the general understanding is that if you were Jewish, you know, uh, denomination not notwithstanding, that you believed in one God and therefore you wouldn't be using the vessels in any kind of idol worship way. In today's day, when you have people who consider themselves Jews but are are not Jewish or cons- are are Boo Jews or Buddhist Jews um, who do have types of of iconography and um, uh, and idols to be. Uh, Part of their spiritual practice? I don't know. It's a really, really good question. I think I would still see those people as idol worshipers, right? You could, I guess we could consider certain, without claiming their religion, just anybody who believes in an idol is an idol worshiper. And then are they not Jewish or are they Jewish? Or instead of, you know, qualifying that all Jews are not idol worshipers, I guess we could look a little bit more deeply into that in the 21st century. Um, but back in the day when this was being written, they just believed that all Jews, uh, or at least Yosef Karo, believed that, that all Jews, if Jews, were, were practicing the same kind of uh, religiosity. Great question, though. Uh, Lori, I'm so glad to see you. You made it. Uh, <laughs> other, other questions, thoughts, thoughts? I, I do have something. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I ended up just rebooting my computer and then I was able to get in. So right. I'm happy. I'm glad it wasn't our fault because it could have been. So No, 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 no. Um, I was on my phone in the meantime. So it's all good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I have a really old, like 1961 <laughs> copy that was on my parents' bookshelf. And um, there's something in this section that talks about pepper grinders and coffee grinders should be immersed uh-huh. um, without benediction. And it's just a very practical question. Like if you immersed a, a coffee grinder or a pepper grinder, it, you know, never mind today, but even in that day with a crank, it just seems like you would ruin it. I just wonder if you have any comments about that category because it's a machine. Yeah. So we're going to get to it. It actually comes in like the next two say themes. So next week we'll get to it for sure. It's possible that your numbering is just is just different. So we, we will be getting to it. Okay. But in terms of in terms of an actual item that shouldn't go into water, it shouldn't go into water. <laughs> right? Like you shouldn't. Someone asked, <clears throat> again, my friend Rabbi Josh Parnick deals with this a lot more than I do. Um, but someone who he was converting in the Orthodox world asked him if they should put their brand new toaster oven into the water. And I said, no, 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 no. Don't put your toaster oven. Like the laws of science still apply. Do not put something electric into water, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so if something is going to rust or not work once you doused it in liquid, don't don't take it to a mikvah. Most likely, what someone would say is just make sure you know where you're buying it from, or if there's a part of it. Like if the 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 um like the base of a pepper grinder can be immersed, but not the whole thing, then immerse that part. For a toaster oven, you can take out the the insert and put that in a mikvah, but not the electric parts of it. So you would in the 21st century, you would just get around that. But back in the Shulchan Aruch, my guess is that what they would say is as much of the item can go in should go in. Otherwise, just make sure you know that you're buying it from someone who was not an idol worshiper would be the, the most uh, practical thing. Yeah, Mike. I've had a question for quite a while and it, yeah. I just thought about it now. Uh, if you were to buy a jar of jelly, okay. it could have six hectares on it. You know darn well that that, that jar was not toiled. Correct. Okay? And yet I don't think anybody would say you can't eat the jelly that's in it. Correct. So there must be some exception for buying foods that are, that are prepared. I, I don't know. But then after the fact, if you're going to use that again, would you have to toivel it at that point or not? No, no, you wouldn't. Cause it's not a new item. So it's a really good question. And um, I'll, I'll look into it a little bit more to make sure that the answer I'm about to give you is, is accurate. Cause part of what's exciting for me about this class is that I'm going to also get to be doing a lot of, a lot of learning. And this is one of those, one of those areas that I'll look into for you. My guess is that because you didn't, it wasn't the e-car, right? It wasn't the essence of why you bought that jar. You bought the jar for the jelly. You didn't buy the jar for the jar. So it'd be different if you bought the jar and then put jelly into it, then yes, it needed to be toiled ahead of time. But if you bought, bought a jar of jelly, you then ate the jelly with its 17 hectares, and then you decided to use the jar afterwards, 
it's as if you've owned the jar all along and it doesn't matter because now the jar is being used for a different thing. And so it's not, it's not a new vessel. That's a fascinating question, and I will uh, I will definitely look into it. My guess is that that is correct, but I but I will look into it a little bit more deeply. Um, okay, the best part about this is that I can just say, see you next week. Uh, <laughs> we can pick up where we left off. So we left off. For those of you who are following along on the actual um, on the actual website, we left off on number six on Saif uh, six of of Yoradea Siman 120. And so we'll pick up at six next week. And uh, and this is a brand new experiment. So if people have thoughts, questions, comments, criticisms, send them my way. If there are other people who you think would enjoy this class, send them my way. Um, and, uh, and really excited to continue on this journey with all of you for the next however many weeks. And Lila Tov, see you all soon. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.